0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ekman, president of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In our program this day I want to focus on the long shadow of 9-11. Last weekend, the United States, and indeed the world, remembered the horrors of the terrorist attacks of September the 11th, 2001. It has been 10 years. Ten years ago, America was united, but that unity has evaporated. Ten years ago, the attack fostered a sense of mission, renewing the United States in its spirit and its self-understanding. Today, to some extent, confusion and a sense of despair reign. Certainly, a sense of fear lingers over the nation, a sense that we are still vulnerable, still open to attack. A short review of American history gives focus to the many wars that our nation has fought and the fear that often resulted from those. Most of the years encompassing the American Revolution, and really it stretches from 1776 through 1781, were not good years. The Continental Army lost many strategic battles, and at times there was no certainty that America would be successful in its goal of independence from Britain. The War of 1812 was, in effect, a second war for American independence from Great Britain. During that war, Britain invaded the United States, burned its capital city in Washington, and seemed on the edge of victory. But Andrew Jackson and others decimated the British Army, and a status quo was reached. The American Civil War was arguably the bloodiest of all America's conflicts. Over 620,000 men were killed, the most deadly war in our history, even exceeding the losses of World War II. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, was a brutal attack on our Pacific fleet. With all these attacks and wars, the news of these horrible events took days, if not weeks, to reach our city- nation's citizens. But the terrorist attack of 9-11 at the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and that crash near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, were on the national news instantly. In fact, the second plane crashing into the South Tower of the World Trade Center was seen by millions as it happened on national TV. All of the horror of that day is burned into our national psyche. We will never forget that day of terror. Ten years later, politically, financially, and socially, America seems to have lost its way. That sense of fear, of anxiety is real and at times almost overwhelming. It is this long shadow of fear that I seek to address in this perspective. To do so, I want to turn to Psalm 46, and I want to focus on what that psalm is saying. The anonymous psalmist writes his psalm, we believe, at the time of Sennacherib, the emperor of the Assyrian Empire, during his 701 B.C. attempt to lay siege to Jerusalem. Hezekiah is king of Judah. Assyria had conquered the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C., and its new ruler was now seeking dominance over Judah. In Psalm 46, 1-3, the psalmist counsels Jerusalem that God is their refuge and strength an ever-present help in time of trouble. It is God who is their security, God who is their protection. His presence, his power are real. He therefore declares, we will not fear. He is counseling Judah to focus on God, not Sennacherib. He is the one they should fear, not Assyria. Further, to drive home his point, He uses hyperbolic language framed around four though statements. Though the earth should give way, though the mountains slide into the sea, though the sea roars and foams with fury, though the mountains quake, we will not fear, he declares. In effect, he is affirming the unalterable faith and trust of Judah in Almighty God. In Psalm 46, verses 4 through 7, the psalmist builds on the empowering presence of God and compares that presence to a river that nurtures and protects Jerusalem. God's presence and his protection of the city of God, Jerusalem, mean it will not be moved, it will not fall. These are the words of the psalmist. That strong sense of stability and security is compared to the mountains falling into the sea in verse 2, the quaking mountains of verse 3, and the nations tottering of verse 6. As God speaks, the nations totter and crumble. Why would Jerusalem fear with a God like that he admonishes? Further, God's names indicate why he is their source of strength and security. The Lord of hosts, he's called. That's a military title, meaning that he commands the hosts of the armies of heaven, and at his command, they will do anything for him. Additionally, he is the God of Jacob, that covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Throughout the Bible, he's declared as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who made unconditional and eternal promises to these patriarchs. He will never renege on those promises. Finally, in Psalm 46, verses 8 through 11, the psalmist beckons Judah to consider the works of Yahweh. That's literally what it says. This has echoes of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 21 through 24, where Yahweh sits on his throne high above the earth, and from that vantage point, earth's humans resemble grasshoppers. Isaiah affirms that God is the creator who created everything, the vast universe filled with stars that he's named, and the earth which is like dust to him. He is also the sovereign God, Isaiah declares, who rules over his world, including the political rulers of earth's kingdoms. He has the power to reduce those rulers to nothing, Isaiah says. They are like plants that he plants, and then he blows on them. And they wither and die and join the dustbin of history. God is the absolute sovereign of his realm, and nothing and no one compares to him, Isaiah states. Now, one can certainly reflect, following this wonderful declaration in Isaiah chapter 40, on the formation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. The first militantly atheistic regime in human history, a regime of utter brutality and totalitarian power. Indeed, the brutality of Lenin, and especially Joseph Stalin, exceeded the brutality even of Adolf Hitler. Robert Conquest, in his book, argues that over 20 million people were killed during the regimes of Lenin and Stalin. Hitler killed 6 million Jews. In many ways, what the Soviets did was greater than the horror of Hitler. The arrogance of that regime in the USSR reached its peak in the 1960s, when Nikita Khrushchev declared that they would launch their cosmonauts into space, find God, and topple him from his throne. In the words of Isaiah 40, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, God blew on the USSR, and it collapsed. So my question is, who toppled whom? God is sovereign. Isaiah 40 declares it, and returning to Isaiah to uh, Psalm 46, the psalmist declares it. Because thinking of the future kingdom of God manifested in his coming millennial kingdom, the psalmist sees a time when wars will cease, military armaments will be destroyed, and the entire earth will confess God is the exalted sovereign. That's in verses 8 through 10. And then in verse 11, the psalmist repeats that refrain of God as the Lord of hosts and the covenant-making God of Israel. In short, Yahweh is a mighty fortress protecting and guarding his people. Two applicational thoughts. One, what happened to Sennacherib? What happened to him? He was the one laying siege to Jerusalem. We think that's perhaps the reason Psalm 46 was written. Well, the Bible declares in 2 Kings 19 that Sennacherib and his armies were defeated by Almighty God supernaturally, and he lost 185,000 of his men. He then returned to his capital city, Nineveh, and in 681 B.C. was assassinated. Secondly, the power and faith that we see in Psalm 46 greatly influenced Martin Luther, who in the midst of his struggles with both Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire and the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, used this psalm as the basis for writing his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. The long shadow of 9-11 in the United States is certainly a shadow of fear and anxiety. Every time we go to an airport and have to wait in security lines, every time we have to go through all the elaborate details of traveling, we're reminded of that. So may God, as we have looked at Psalm 46, may God enable us, however, to focus on him, not on Al-Qaeda not on the powers of this world that genuinely threaten our security. We must be vigilant as a nation. We must be prepared. But as with the psalmist of Psalm 46, God is our refuge. God is our strength. God is that ever-present help in times of trouble. May this 10th anniversary of 9-11 be a time of spiritual renewal and revival for America. For it is only God who is the antidote to our fears and our anxieties. In our second and final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about a complex but yet very important question, a very important proposition, a very important argument. Jesus Christ and Christianity as a liberator of women. Without question, one of the most hotly debated issues in American evangelicalism today is the role of women in the church. There are good and godly leaders on both sides of nearly every question of this debate. But one issue that cannot be debated is that the scriptures affirm the equality of men and women, both in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 and 27, in their position in Christ, Galatians 3.28, and as joint heirs in the coming kingdom, 1 Peter 3.7. While the Bible proclaims equality, it also argues for functional differences, role differences, within the home and within the church. Whatever the precise meanings and applications of these crucial passages in Paul's writings, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, First Corinthians 11 and 14, and First Peter 2 and 3 and 5 in Titus, all of those passages, church history bears witness to an extraordinary number of women in strategic places of ministry in the early church. The gospel was a liberating force in the ancient world. It is a liberating force in the 21st century. When challenged by the gospel, old and established traditions rooted in human prejudice gradually died. Contempt, discrimination, demeaning references often characterized rabbinic teachings about women. Rabbis, for instance, were encouraged not to teach or even speak to women. Also, according to Jewish tradition, women could never be a part of the count needed to establish a synagogue in the ancient world. But Luke, in his writing, cited both men and women who were baptized and persecuted and who contributed to the growth of the church. I refer you to Acts chapter 5, 8, 9, 17. This challenge to ancient tradition, of course, began with Jesus' earthly ministry in which women played a most significant role. Many women supported the ministry of Jesus, and the twelve financially and ministered him personally. You can see that in Matthew 27, in Mark 15, and especially in Luke 8, where some of them are named. The Gospels usually depict Mary, the sister of Martha, as seated at Jesus' feet, an honor normally given to men. Several women had the immensely important distinction of bearing the news of Christ's resurrection, a quite remarkable honor in light of strict Jewish teachings on valid testimony in the first century. Not only were women involved in the ministry of Jesus, they were even part of the events at Pentecost in Acts 4. Since the narrative of events in the upper room continues into chapter 2, we must assume that the women present were likewise filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, again in Acts 2. The book of Acts also gives account of women who played active roles in the ministry of the early church. Permit me time to review some of those. It really is quite extraordinary. First of all, consider Dorcas, or sometimes called Tabitha. She's the only woman in the New Testament who is called a disciple of Jesus, Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Her death caused a major stir in Joppa, it caused peter to come and perform one of his greatest miracles raising dorcas tabitha from the dead mary of jerusalem john mark's mother recorded in acts 12 was a wealthy widow whose house became the vital hub of the jerusalem church there the young church in john mark's mother's home mary of jerusalem there the early church found refuge and security during the intense persecutions of king herod Agrippa. thirdly One of the most remarkable women of the New Testament was Priscilla, sometimes called Prisca. She and her husband Aquila, early converts to Christianity, were banished from Rome. They were intimate friends of Paul, and they shared both hospitality and the craft of tent making with Paul. Also, in some way, they had risked their lives for Paul, perhaps at the same time heightening his awareness of the growing church in Rome. Perhaps most significantly, both Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos, that eloquent preacher from Alexandria, and in the words of Act 18.26, explained to him the way of God more accurately. Obviously, Priscilla knew biblical truth. She could explain it with clarity, and she was part of that critical discipleship ministry with Apollos. That the ministry of this couple was well-known and widespread is evidenced by the frequent references to them in the writings of the Apostle Paul in Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, and 2 Timothy 4, for example. Tradition has it that Priscilla was martyred in Rome. Fourthly, consider the New Testament woman named Phoebe. She's recorded and referenced in Romans 16. Because she was probably the bearer of Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul commends her to the Roman church. He says to the Roman church, Receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Help her in whatever manner she may need of you, he instructs. He also says of Phoebe that she is a helper to many. The word helper clearly implies active and important functions in the church. Was she therefore representing Paul in Romans 16 in some official capacity as perhaps a deaconess, sometimes translated servant, as some have argued? Well, that's very difficult to argue that. From these two verses, Romans 16, 1 and 2, we simply cannot be certain that, that Phoebe held an authoritative office in their church. What we do know is that Phoebe was significant enough, important enough, that Paul went out of his way to single her out and ask the church at Rome to take care of her. Fifthly, in this quick summary of women referenced in the book of Acts and how strategic their ministry was in the early years of the church. Two passages indicate that women functioned as prophets in the early church. Acts 21.9, for example, introduces Philip the evangelist as having four daughters who were prophetesses, it says. From Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, and that's a very difficult passage, it would seem that Philip's daughters were not exceptions, for Paul's instruction about women's head coverings, whatever that exactly means, occurs in the context of women, quote, praying or prophesying in worship services. Whatever the nature of these ministries, and there is a great deal of discussion about what that means to be a prophet in the first century, we know that we have women Philip's daughters and the women Paul's referencing in 1 Corinthians 11, who, gifted by the Holy Spirit, exercised notable responsibilities in the early church. Finally, other women in the New Testament filled pivotal roles of ministry in the early church. Euodias and Syntyche are mentioned in Philippians 4. They were identified as fellow workers of Paul, a remarkable designation when one remembers that Paul also labeled Titus and Timothy as fellow workers, the same identical reference. In Romans 16, Paul classifies Andronicus and Junius, a woman, we believe, as outstanding among the apostles, most likely a reference to their role as once commissioned by the Roman church for special duties. Finally, in the list of fellow workers in Romans chapter 16, 10 of the 29 people commended by Paul in that chapter are women. Now, what's the point of all this? What's the bottom line of all of this? There is no question that we must reach this conclusion. Women played a decisive role in the beginning of Christianity. Their work both complemented the duties of men and involved some leadership responsibilities. There is no question about that. Although there are no recorded examples of women evangelists or women elders or women being formal teachers of biblical truth, their function was both vibrant and vital in the ongoing progress of the gospel, a clear testimony to the liberating power of Jesus Christ. Today, that proposition that Christianity is a liberating power for women is lost in the United States and much of Western Europe. But when it gets into the third world, when it getting into Latin America, into Africa, and into Asia, it's liberating. No one can compare Islam and biblical Christianity and say Islam treats women the way Christianity does. History demonstrates incontrovertibly that Christianity and the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ liberates women, and that is an important issue, an important proposition, an important idea, and an important tenet of our faith, because the Bible sees women as equal in the image of God, equal at the cross, and equal as joint heirs. In the coming kingdom of Christ. And that affects how they assume their roles in the church and in the home as liberated human beings, free in Jesus Christ, accepting the role responsibilities in the home and in the church, but liberated and free in Christ. And that liberating force and that liberating power of Christ goes on. It is important for us in the church to recognize that. And it all began in the first century church. Were contrary to everything that rabbinic Judaism was teaching, and contrary to much of what was part of the Roman, Greco-Roman world, it is Christianity which elevates and gives power and authority and a strategic set of roles to women in the first century church. May that sense of liberating power penetrate Islam as Christ does penetrate Islam and all other worldviews because the liberating power of Christ brings faith in the finished work of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, and then begins to affect and change and liberate and transform culture. That's the way the Lord has always done it. And you see the evidence of that in the liberating power of the gospel for women who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Eckman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.